Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to thank and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. Let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by LMSL, the life management science labs. I am your host Tia Harmer and today I am joined by Professor Everett Worthington, a clinical psychologist and Commonwealth Professor Emeritus working in the Department of Psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. Today's topic explores forgiveness as a coping mechanism and how it informs our personal resilience. Let's get started. Hi, Everett. How are you? I'm good, and it's good to be with you. Great. Thanks so much for being here. So before we begin, you've had a very interesting professional life. So before we start, for those who don't know you, do you mind explaining a bit about who you are and what it is you do? I am a... Uh, a clinical psychologist. So for a number of years, I saw patients uh, part-time and also am a university professor in the Department of Psychology. So I have uh, spent about 40 years at Virginia Commonwealth University doing wow. research and teaching large classes and, uh, and just really enjoying students uh, and then speaking around the, the world. So. Uh, it's it's been a fun ride. About uh, 2017, I retired. So uh, so I still, or as I like to say it, my salary retired. I did not. So <laughs> I'm continuing to uh, to do research. Oh, amazing! That's great. So we're going to do a bit of a get to know Everett now. So I'm just going to ask you some questions so the listeners can get to know a bit more about you. Ready? Uh-huh. Ready. Perfect. All right. First question is, what's your favorite book? Well, I I just read a really good book called The Second Mountain, and that's by David Brooks. So David Brooks is a journalist at the New York Times. And that uh, it's just a wonderful book about how we spend a lot of our time trying to build up our vita. And then we realize at some point in life that relationships are very important. And that's the mm. second mountain is building those relationships. Yeah. Oh, wow. Fascinating. And that one's by David Brooks. Yes. Perfect. And second question is a movie you would recommend. Huh. I like this question. <laughs> well, I, for pure entertainment, I just, I, I can't think that there's a better movie than Casablanca with uh, Humphrey uh, yeah. Bogart. Uh, so I oh, think gotcha. for, you know, entertainment, that's, uh, that's, it doesn't get any better than that. I like the classic movie, It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. Yes. <laughs> and the reason I like that is that it shows people that 
you know, you don't have to be famous to have a real impact in life that it's, mm. uh, you know, people can have a, a gigantic impact on the, the relationships and the people around them. So, you know, I think for, for an inspirational movie, that one does it for me. Definitely. Yes. Yeah, so gorgeous. And the third question is, who is your famous role model? If you have one, not everybody has one. So, Well, I do. Uh, and that would be Nelson Mandela. I think, uh, of course, since I study forgiveness, I can't think of a better uh, person in the yes. in the world and in history than uh, than what he was able to do. Definitely, very inspiring man. And question four is a course you have completed. Doesn't have to be recent. <laughs> well, at the last time that I took an actual course was probably about the time that dirt was invented. So that would be a long <laughs> time ago. But, but I listened to educational uh, video courses and, 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 uh, and in the car, CD courses all the time. So uh, there's this um, company called The Great Courses. And uh, I must have listened to at least 50 history courses. So, oh, wow. uh, you know, I, I, I'd call that a course in history. I think so. Yeah, I think that definitely qualifies. Oh, wonderful. So as I already mentioned today, we are discussing forgiveness as a coping mechanism and how this relates to personal resilience, which is the overall topic of this podcast. So for our listeners, Everett, how would you define personal resilience? Well, it, what you said earlier when you were talking about personal resilience is actually the way I would define it, and that is bouncing back from adversity. So mm. it's uh, experiencing something that we think is negative. It, it has an impact on us, but most people bounce back. Uh, George Bonanno yeah. is a famous resilience researcher, and he, he believes that that in a, a recent book in 2021, he, he argued that we are going to think about trauma differently because most people bounce back and are resilient rather than experience experiencing something like post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. So it's bouncing back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly the title of this podcast. So why do you think resilience is important in our life? Well, I, I think that um, I like to think of it as more like silly putty rather than a basketball. So silly putty <laughs> will bounce back a little higher than, uh, than you know, it was initially. And so I think it's important that we grow that that is part of life is is being able to take whatever comes to us whether it's positive or whether it's negative and somehow be able to extract things out of that that help us grow mm. and that so i think resilience is what is uh kind of the motive behind just helping us grow yeah, definitely. I like the silly putty analogy. That's great because, yeah, you're right. When you when you bounce a basketball and 
it doesn't sort of bounce the second time as high as it would the first time. Um, but the silly putty, yeah, that's great. I love looking at it like that. <laughs> so a lot of people think that resilience means being immune to stresses and adversity. So it's not so much about bouncing back as it is sort of just never failing or never never falling. So why do you think that is? Well, uh, you know, I think uh, people have an ideal where they would like to think that things would just bounce off of them and not have any effect. But I think the, the fact of life is that things do have an impact on us. They do, you know, at times, if it's a negative event, they, they uh, depress us or makes us make us feel anxious or some kind of mm. negative emotion. So I, I think yeah. that that uh, I like the idea of resilience as, as bouncing back more than being immune and having something bounce off of us. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's something that as a society, we're kind of deconstructing in terms of that, you know, nobody is immune to stress and nobody is immune to adversity. And because we're humans, at some point, we will all kind of face um, those hurdles in those situations. So I think, yeah, learning resilience is so much more important than we think it is. So today we're talking about forgiveness more specifically. This is a sort of complicated topic. It's something that sort of a lot of people understand as rooted in religion or philosophy and all those kinds of things. But I want to know from your point of view, how do you define forgiveness? Mm-hmm. Well, I, uh, I think that there are actually two separate experiences of forgiveness. And so okay. one of those, uh, you know, is, is making a decision to forgive. And, and that means making a decision to treat the other person differently than I might treat them if they've hurt me. So I, I, uh, I'm going to kind of make an intention to not get even with them, to mm. not be nasty toward them, but to rather treat them as a valued and valuable person. So, so that, of course, is what a psychologist calls a a behavioral intention statement. That is, it's, it's not really acting differently because if if I make that intention to act differently toward the person, even if they got hit by a car tonight and I never got to carry that out, I still would have made that decision to forgive. Hmm. But but there is a, a second type of forgiveness and that, that happens because we we can make a decision to forgive and carry it out for the rest of our lives, totally treating this person as a valued and valuable person and still feel emotionally upset with them every time we think about what they did. So, so that suggests there has to be a second type of forgiveness. And, and I call that emotional forgiveness. So emotional forgiveness is replacing negative unforgiving emotions like resentment Mm. and bitterness uh, or hostility or hate or anger with positive other oriented emotions. So when I, when I say replacing the 
the picture that I have in mind is, is kind of like a chemist in a lab that is titrating acid. So there's this acid <laughs> of unforgiveness in our gut, you know, and, and we're adding yeah. little bits of positive to it and it neutralizes it little by little. So what I feel is I don't feel the positive. I just feel myself getting less and less negative until I get to a place where I'm pretty much neutral. Hmm. Now, what happens at, at that point is it depends on the type of relationship I have with this person. If, if this is a person I don't care if I interact with them ever again, maybe they, they robbed <laughs> me, you know, I, yeah. I don't, I don't want to hang out with them and be their bud, you know. So, uh, so if I've got that kind of relationship, pretty much full emotional forgiveness is just getting to the place where I feel nothing toward them. But if this were my wife, and she, of course, would never do anything to harm me. We've been married 52 years. And, and uh, oh, wow. yeah, so but, but if if she were to, you know, do something hypothetically and I told her, listen, I've gotten to the place where I feel nothing toward you. I do not predict a good time after that. So mm, so we want, yeah. you know, with with valued relationships we want to keep building in until we have a, a kind of a positive feeling toward them restored mm. again until we've yeah. bounced back if you will uh to a positive <laughs> feeling fascinating so that kind of brings me into my next question which is about how forgiveness sort of interacts and affects our personal resilience because <clears throat> from what you said it's sort of it sounds very similar in terms of how you kind of build up that forgiveness that's decisional and emotional and then kind of, um, yeah, like you said, sort of, what's the word? Neutralizing. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Neutralizing the negative feelings to build back up that trust and that value with that person. So that sounds quite sort of similar to a lot of the time what we talk about and the personal resilience side of that. How do you think forgiveness affects our personal resilience? Well, I, I think they, the two ideas are very similar to each other. Mm. I look at resilience as being um, kind of almost completely internal. You know, I'm bouncing back. But forgiveness is something that is, is internal and yet... It happens in an interpersonal context. And so, so it can help our relationship bounce back as well. So uh, it can help our spirituality bounce back. You know, there, there are, you know, uh, there's an overlap of the two, but I, I look at forgiveness as being at one time limited, more limited than resilience because it's just about an interpersonal hurt. But in, it's more broad than resilience in terms of there are implications in the relationship, in the spirit, in the mental health, in the physical health, uh, all, all of those. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So that kind of, so I want to go into the next question 
which sort of asks you to define decisional and emotional forgiveness, but you've kind of already done it. So I sort of want to take a different angle in terms of looking at, you know, you talked about those two different types of forgiveness. Can you sort of, can one operate without the other? For example, you talked about decisional sort of forgiveness. Can that operate on a healthy level by itself without that emotional forgiveness? Well, I, I think that they're they're quite independent of each other. So okay. we've we've done a number of studies in which we've run correlations between the two. So meaning, you know, to what degree are they related to each other? And it turns out the correlation between the two is about 0.4, where the largest possible perfect correlation is 1.0. So what this uh, is, it really, uh, there's not much relationship between whether a person is experiencing decisional forgiveness and emotional forgiveness. And and there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, one of the reasons is that it's just time. So I could Mm -hmm. make a decision to forgive and be carrying that out, but but my emotions might be very, very slow to change. So then I've not experienced any uh, or emotional forgiveness, so to speak, even though I've got kind of full decisional forgiveness. But on the other hand, you know, there's no time order on this. So I actually could experience a change in my emotions but never have made a decision that I'm going to treat this person differently. So I could just be, you know, okay, I can deal with this. I can cope with this. I feel better about this. You know, I've got rid of my resentment. I've got rid of my bitterness, but I have not decided to treat that person differently at all. So, so either one of those could happen in either order and, you know, they could happen at the same time in which case they would be well correlated with each other, or <laughs> yeah. they would happen at far apart different times where no matter where you measure mm-hmm. it, it's not quite, you know, 100% correlated with each other. Yeah, that's so interesting because from what I've got here, it's sort of the research shows that emotional forgiveness is sort of where the most sort of benefits lie in terms of building those relationships, those values, and that's sort of where they've termed it as sort of health benefits. So I'm, I'm assuming that's going to be like sort of those mental health benefits of having that um, trust and that love and that value back in that person. So emotional forgiveness, uh, this type of forgiveness has been seen to sort of reduce our stressful reaction to a transgression. How does each type of forgiveness help people to sort of cope with their sort of personal issues mm-hmm. towards that person. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, each of the two different types of forgiveness actually has different effects, different benefits. So if you think about, you know, a decision to treat the person differently, that's actually going to have more relational benefits than emotional forgiveness, where I just feel differently toward the person. 
So because mm, yeah, I have okay. decided to treat them differently and they see that and then they reciprocate. They, you know, they do the, the same thing and treat me better too. So, but the, the physical health and the mental health benefits are definitely more on the side of emotional forgiveness than decisional forgiveness. And that's because that emotional forgiveness does change the way that our body you know, acts. It changes our stress response. It, you know, changes our, what, you know, physiologists call our vagal tone, which, which just means my ability to calm myself. So, so there's a lot of physical changes that happen with emotional forgiveness, you know, mm. but the relational uh, changes happen more with the, the, the um, decisional forgiveness. Now, I may not have answered your question, but it was, it probably was a good answer. It just wasn't the question you asked. <laughs> so you might want to ask your question again and, and see if I can speak better. <laughs> no, I find it really fascinating because I'm sort of looking at sort of different research and all these things here. And they talk about hollow forgiveness, which is like that phenomenon of they're sort of doing that decisional forgiveness but then still holding a grudge against that person and that kind of actually answers one of our audience questions so I kind of just want to ask that in terms of um, making that decisional forgiveness um, and sort of leading into that phenomenon of hollow forgiveness um, is that going to create an issue like do you think long term just being able to forgive somebody on a decisional basis, do you think that'll affect someone's relationship with that person long-term? Uh, I, I do. I think decisional forgiveness is a good thing, you know, no matter how it's done. The, the term hollow forgiveness, I would, I would say is more the insincere communication of forgiveness. Okay. Now, forgiveness, you notice whether it's a, a decision that I make or whether it's emotions I experience happens inside my skin. But when I communicate something, you know, that's interpersonal. That's not really forgiveness. That I, you know, I like to talk about it as communicating forgiveness because it's, it's not forgiveness. Because I could say, well, of course I forgive you. And you go, oh, thank you so much for forgiving me. And you turn your back and I go, <laughs> and stab you in the back. You see, <laughs> yeah. What I say is not necessarily what I'm experiencing inside. So mm. hollow forgiveness is more an insincere communication. So maybe I'm intimidated right. by the person. And so to say, well, sure, I, I forgive you. I don't internally. And I've not made a decision to act any differently. In fact, I'm going to avoid you at every possible opportunity, you know? Yeah. You see, now, hollow forgiveness in that way, in the way that in communicating in, uh, insincerely, I think that does have negative effects uh, on relationships because mm. you just can't sustain that, that falsehood over time. Or if you do, it's at a great cost to yourself where you have to feel like yeah. I'm acting in a way that's not me. So, mm. but decisional forgiveness, making a decision to treat that person in a different way internally, I make this decision. That's good. 
whether it's followed by emotional forgiveness or not. Yeah, that's interesting because I kind of just want to take a bit of sort of a segue here in terms of looking at probably more like family dynamics in terms of sort of that relationship between parent-child or just like parent-parent kind of things. How do you operate in those sort of circumstances? So like let's say sort of you have a parent um, that you often struggle to get along with and you need to make those um, sort of pathways in terms of decisional forgiveness to be able to operate in that relationship. But long term, when it comes to family, how do you kind of navigate forgiveness in that kind of context? Because from what I've heard <laughs> and from what I've experienced, I'll be honest with you, Everett, it's, it can be quite difficult because obviously these are people that you love and you're kind of a lot of the time sort of stuck with inadvertently. Um, so how do you kind of move forward in terms of having a healthy form of forgiveness in a, in a family setting? Well, I think that's a, a great question. And of course, that's what, you know, we struggle with all the time. And, and what makes it so difficult is that this is an ongoing relationship. And it's not just that, you know, my evil stepmother hurt me, you know, once, and then she was done with it. And she's been an angel ever since. But likelihood is she hurt me once and then the next day and then Mm -hmm. twice the next day. And, and so, so I never can quite get down to zero. I never can get it all titrated or neutralized out to where it's zero. So I'm kind of always struggling with my emotions there. And in those cases, we realize that how complicated life is and that, you know, love, if I love this person, I'm going to choose not to act on these emotions. I'm just going to try to deal with them as best that I can and be as loving as I can in my interactions with my loved one so I'm not sure that that I guess if I had a really good answer to that question you could just (laughs) mail me my Nobel Prize (laughs) exactly yeah I guess like if yeah if there was a real sort of straightforward answer in terms of how do you solve forgiveness in families and how do you be more forgiving towards relatives then we would not have all those you know infamous Christmas movies with bad relatives and, you know, in-law issues and all those sort of things. Uh (laughs) So they wouldn't be so much of a problem. Anyway, okay, so getting back on track here, you've developed. Let let me just jump in here a minute. Oh, please. We have the open (laughs) mic a little later. I'm going to talk about Mm. humility and, uh, and how important that is in terms of, like, family gets get-togethers and Mm. when we get provoked by someone you know uncle ned who you know provokes (laughs) everyone at the entire table you know uh, within two minutes after the meal starts so i I think that humility is going to turn out to be one answer there that if i Mm. am oriented toward the good of the other person and that, that's yeah. going to cover up a lot of the just straight re- 
response to the to any hurt or antagonism. Mm, definitely, yeah. I think, yeah, when you have, there's so many different things that come into forgiveness and there's so many different mm -hmm. sort of human attributes that we need to build on to be able to do those things in a healthy way, you know, resilience, humility, all those kinds of things, they all sort of inform our ability to forgive. So in saying that, you've developed a five-step process called REACH. So do you mind explaining sort of a bit about what that is and how it teaches us to be more forgiving in a healthy and attainable way? Sure. Um, this is a, a program that we've been studying now for probably since the late 1990s and uh, I've really done, you know, like, well, we haven't done, but scientists have done like over 30 randomized control trials showing that this is effective in all kinds of situations. So mm. it's, it's really a simple idea, but it's hard to do. <laughs> forgiveness is not easy you know it's it's hard so it is yeah. going to involve first of all uh we help people work through five steps to emotional forgiveness and after they've experienced some emotional forgiveness then we invite them to think about whether they want to decide to act differently toward this person so, okay, yeah. so the five steps to emotional forgiveness are cued, the memory is cued by the uh, acronym REACH. So, and I, and I can say these really quick. Doing them is not <laughs> quick. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, but R is recall the hurt. So I can't deny that I've been hurt to myself or just, you know, uh, to, to everybody else and, and still expect to make things better. But it also doesn't help if I just keep rehearsing what a jerk the person was for hurting me or mm -hmm. how damaged I've been because I've been hurt so bad. So, so I have to recall the hurt in a different way. And the, the way that we, you know, try to help people start with is E, which is to empathize with the person that hurt you. That is, mm. I know myself, I have hurt uh, people, and I almost never get up in the morning and say, oh, great, how can I ruin their day today? <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I'm usually trying to do something that's helpful, and it, it mm, goes south, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and so, so usually... Not always, because some people do just aim to hurt you. But usually people are trying to do something that's helpful, but it doesn't work out well. They, they kind of fumble the ball, uh, if you will. Yeah. So, so empathizing with the people is, uh, uh, you know, it's a way to put yourself in their position. And that helps you be more you know, likely to give what we call an altruistic gift of forgiveness. Okay. So altruism yeah. is, is, of course, giving something to someone who doesn't deserve to have 
whatever gift you're giving them. And no one who's hurt me deserves the gift of forgiveness. So this, if I give that gift, then that's going to be an altruistic gift. It's, it's out of the goodness of my heart. And so, and so one of the things we do to help people, you know, give that altruistic gift is to get them to empathize. And then we, we, you know, ask them if they have ever hurt someone and just the person has just hauled off and forgiven them. And, mm. you know, people can search back with their memories and find many times when their parents just let them off the hook, you know, and, you know, and didn't punish them, didn't, didn't ground them until they were 28, like they said they were going to, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. So uh, if people can see then how they felt when they got that altruistic gift, which is usually free yeah. and light and the chains have fallen off, that helps them want to give that same type of altruistic gift to the person. So we've got R, recall the hurt, E, empathize, A, give an altruistic gift, and then C, commit to the forgiveness that you've experienced. So mm. we give people a lot of ways that they can commit. One is to tell others that they've forgiven, uh, or they can just write a, a, a letter to themselves or a, fill out a forgiveness certificate to themselves. Um, yeah. In a group, we have them sometimes write a little note on their hand that this person betrayed me so i write betrayed down on my hand in permanent ink you know and then i wash it off and that's like hmm. going through this reach model and yeah getting rid of it and sometimes it all comes off sometimes it doesn't so sometimes i have to repeat the washing so c is like make some kind of commitment to the mm. forgiveness that I've experienced. And the reason that that works is because, you know, it, it helps me to age, hold on to that forgiveness whenever I doubt. And I almost mm. always will doubt that I've forgiven. You know, it's like, suppose that I work through the reach forgiveness model and, and I have a breakthrough and I forgive my boss. Uh, for all the, the mean things that he's done. And I walk in on Monday morning and I see my boss. You know, do you think that I'm going to go, oh, and just fall on his neck, you know, and <laughs> hug him? I'm not, you know. What will happen is I will feel anger because that's a conditioned response and yeah. that anger, you know, it's easy. If I feel angry toward my boss, it's easy for me to say, oh, wow, I must not have forgiven him. But I have forgiven him. I'm just experiencing a different emotion. So so that's kind of the, the five steps to emotional forgiveness, to reach emotional forgiveness. And then after that, we invite people to consider if they want to to make a decision to treat the person uh, in a different way as a result of the emotional change they've experienced. Interesting. So that kind of, so in that way, you're sort of asking them to make that emotional decision to forgive them before they make that 
decisional <laughs> sort of forgiveness. So it's kind of emotional and then decisional is that sort of right. what it's aiming for. That's yeah. right. Because if you just invite a person to act differently, <laughs> they will yeah. usually look at you and go, no, not going to do it. You're <laughs> just a jerk, you know. So yeah. they kind of have to, you know, feel differently, but and that will help them decide differently. True, yeah. Now, yeah. in real life, you know, now this, this is an intervention to help people. So what a clinical psychologist does with an intervention of some kind is to walk you through a kind of a logical stepwise procedure that gets you to the place you want to go. Um, mm. In real life, you know, I can make a decision first and then I can decide I, I'm going to forgive that person. I'm going to treat them differently. I don't want to keep being at odds with them. And I may yeah. still be upset. And so now I have to break out the reach, mo reach forgiveness model and work through my emotions. So it doesn't matter which one comes first. It's just, do you get to the place you want to get to in the end? Yeah, yeah. That's fascinating. So <clears throat> you mentioned before um, sort of when it came to the, the empathy side of it in terms of empathizing um, with the person that you want to forgive. So I want to sort of talk about when it comes to more traumatic incidents, kind of things um, that involve sort of post-traumatic stress disorder, um, where people often experience sort of flashbacks when they feel like they're reliving a past traumatic event, sort of they're recalling it and being able to, being able to empathize in that moment. How do you think sort of that obstacle can be sort of overcome? Because when I look at it, that's something like very sort of complicated and difficult to do and sort of, you know, wouldn't it be an obstacle for them to be able to forgive the, you know, the, the transgressor? So how can people who have sort of struggled with traumatic events, how can they sort of move forward in being able to get to that place of forgiveness mm -hmm. so that they're not having to feel that sort of constant pain and anger? Is is there a way for them to sort of get to that place? I think there actually are probably a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, so one of the things that we always do is to say, you know, nobody has to forgive. There are, there are a lot of ways to deal with injustice in your life, mm. a lot of good ways that work. And, and so we are careful to try to, you know, to sh show people that they can, you know, they could get justice in some kind of way, or they could see justice done, you know, whether they got justice or not. Uh, you know, I got run off the road once and by this guy who was a, a crazy driver and he was speeding and then as i i was uh, on a bicycle and as i topped the hill mm. the police had stopped him or giving him a, a ticket i didn't hold any unforgiveness toward him for running me off the road you know because i saw he was getting what he deserved i saw that justice mm. was done well that's not forgiveness that's justice or people can turn right, it over okay. to God. You know, a lot of people are yeah. like, yeah, I'm going to turn it over to God. He's going to set them. Yeah. In other words, they're appealing <laughs> to divine justice. 
Or people just say, well, I'm going to turn it over to God. Not, not my problem, God's problem. I could tolerate it. I could just say, yeah, well, I'm just going to put up with this. Well, that usually has a lot of costs emotionally, especially in the Western half of the world. Uh, mm. But, you know, I can tolerate I can forbear. So forbearance is more preferred by more Eastern, you know, uh, cultures in which forbearance is like to say, well, I'm going to put up with it, but there's a good reason. And that's for the social harmony for the, for the good right, of the okay. group. So now I have yeah. a reason. I'm not just putting up with it, but I'm putting up with it for a good reason, or I can just accept it and move on. Hey, life is too short. I'm just going to accept it. Or I could forgive. So, so you see, there are a lot of ways that people can deal with injustices. They don't have to forgive, you know. Right. Okay. But what we tell them is, you can mix and match these so that you get rid of that negative, those negative feelings that you have. Now, a lot of people with with trauma, you know, one of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder is flashbacks. You mentioned a flashback. Hmm. A flashback is an involuntary experience of this event again. So that's a very different thing than approaching this as, okay, I'm going to remember this event in order to forgive it or in order to accept it or in order to forbear or in order to turn it over to God or whatever. Mm. You see, there's a very, a very much of a difference between what spontaneously I can't control and what I am controlling, you know, yeah. and therefore I'm experiencing negative, but it's much more measured than it is mm. with those flashbacks that just kind of come at you and people are you yeah, know are really yeah. bothered by them yeah i kind of want to ask sort of when it comes to sort of traumatic events and things like this a lot of the time the first thing they'll tell you is a sort of a medical professional or a psychologist or something the first thing they'll say is it's not your fault or it wasn't your fault de depending on what the situation was obviously um but a lot of the time when it comes to things like that the first thing you get told is it, it's not your fault. It wasn't your fault. In those situations, when it comes to um, personal forgiveness, so forgiveness, um, sort of you have to forgive yourself, is it, can you sort of go through the same process or do you have to take sort of a different route when it comes to sort of personal forgiveness? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Um, I think that, self-forgiveness is a lot more complicated than forgiving other people. And right. the reason is I, w I want to forgive myself. If I did something wrong, you know, I hurt somebody and I, and I'm living with the guilt and the shame of this, you know, I, <laughs> you can't just go, I forgave myself. And it's done. You know, yeah. it's like, I, I'm a mass murderer. I've killed 50 people, but I've forgiven myself. 
you know, find yeah. somebody to go that. I'm going, no, yeah. you can't no. do that. <laughs> so yeah. we want to re- self-forgive in a responsible way. And that means that there's some preliminary steps before you can get to the place where you start trying that reach forgiveness model to try mm. it on myself or making a decision to forgive myself. So the kind of the three the preliminary models or th- preliminary steps are, first of all, you know, I have to make things right with whatever I hold to be sacred. So if that's right. God, I make things right with God. I try to. If, if, if that's nature and I feel that what I've done is a crime against nature and I'm out of sorts with nature, well, I try to make things right and get back into harmony with nature. If, if I feel that I've done a crime against humanity, I try to make things right with humanity. So whatever it is that I hold to be sacred, I have to try to make some kind of sacred repair, if you will. The second uh, step is, is then, you know, if I've harmed someone or if my actions have had consequences that harmed people, I want to try to make it right with the people that I've harmed. Uh, and often it's like I may not have done anything to harm them. Suppose that I uh, wanted to go to medical school. I took the medical national medical board uh, exams and I did and I didn't make it but I feel so bummed out about this that I am just nasty to live with and so my brother you know feels the fallout and my wife feels the fallout and you know you see I am harming them even though I didn't do anything wrong to them I didn't harm them in a moral way so so I want to try to make relational repairs that can make things right as much as possible. And then the third is I may have injured myself, um, in, in, you know, kind of psychologically. Right now, one of the hot topics among veterans is what's called moral injury, and that is they've done something that's against their code of morals or they've witnessed something against their code of morals and they didn't do anything about it and so they've inflicted this moral injury on themselves and so before they can enter into self-forgiveness they have to kind of deal with that moral injury and try to make things as right as they can so once we've done that then the person, you know, can enter into responsible self-forgiveness and can work through the reach uh, acrostic, uh, you know, recall the hurt, empathize, altruistic gift to myself as if I would to another yeah. commit and hold on and, and then make a decision to forgive myself. Now, here's the problem. Often, that doesn't take care of everything because there right. are a lot of people that can say, I can forgive what I did. I just have trouble accepting that I am the type of person that would do that. That's a different yeah, thing yeah. than self-forgiveness. That's self-acceptance. 
And that really is like the cornerstone of most psychotherapy practices is helping people accept themselves because they fall short of their own standards in some way. So, so then the last step in self-forgiveness is I want to not do this again. I don't want to repeat my mistakes. I want to kind of vow to live virtuously as much as I can, uh, at least in mm. this particular way so that I don't do this again. So I think self-forgiveness is it's complicated. It's hard. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's why I kind of want to ask because I asked this like sort of we talk about forgiving other people, but obviously, you know, we're humans and we don't do what we're supposed to be doing perfectly. Um, so in the chance that we do hurt someone, sort of how do we move forward with that? But yeah, I think it is definitely important to kind of have those self-realizations and those self-reflections um, and yeah, just kind of almost sort of accepting um, that you did that and you made that mistake and, and that was you as, as difficult as that could be because nobody wants to hear that, right? Like nobody yeah. wants to know that they were the person um, that did that. But I think it's sort of just a growth kind of mindset in terms of being able to understand that, you know, you have flaws just like everybody else and, you know, just like people have hurt you, you will sort of hurt them Um so, yeah, I think that's great. But those preliminary steps, I think, are definitely um, helpful before you go sort of into the reach steps. So we kind of want to divert here a little bit. You've mentioned sort of in the past that you've had a complicated relationship with forgiveness and being able to forgive people. Do you mind sharing a bit about uh, your forgiveness or your experience in terms of forgiving people and how you've learned from those experiences? Uh, you know, just like everybody, I've had uh, quite a number of things that uh, people have done to me that I've done to hurt uh, other people. But uh, when I was um, early in my research, I'd been studying forgiveness for about six or seven years, I guess. And, uh, and it turned out that I got really kind of put to the test because uh, on a New Year's Eve night, my mother was murdered in a, a home invasion. So uh, apparently a young man thinking that no one was home and it broke in uh, searching for treasure, uh, thinking that people were gone to a New Year's Eve party because the house was dark. My mother had gone to bed early. She didn't drive, so there was no car in the driveway. And so he probably thought he was going to you know, create this perfect crime. And he broke in, and of course, it did end up waking her up as he searched the place. And you know, he uh, ended up bludgeoning her with a crowbar uh, until she died. So I learned about that on New Year's morning. My brother called me from Knoxville, Tennessee, which is about seven mile, seven hours drive away from uh, Richmond, Virginia, where, where I live. And, uh, and he said, you know, he's really shaken. He said, uh, something terrible's happened. You know, mom has been killed and, and you, you and, my, and our sister need to come down. And so I called my sister up who also lives in Richmond and we drove down together 
and that tossed us into the middle of this um, murder investigation, and it, which is it's a very chaotic experience. And they mm -hmm. took us over to this house that we grew up in for twenty something years, and uh, and it's just a scene of a crime. You know, it's been searched by looking for treasures and things have been thrown everywhere and and then there's just blood all over the wall where this violence took place in the in the hallway and so you know as we um kind of processed what was being uncovered in the investigation over the course of the day um more and more understanding came to light and it, it started mm. to look a lot like a youth with a break-in and uh <clears throat> and they actually found a wine bottle that uh you know apparently he had been drinking and a and a bunch of uh, a thing that held change and money that he had carried away and thrown away in a big field nearby so so as the kind of the facts started to unfold by that night, my brother and sister and I were in my brother's back room and we were talking and <clears throat> the more that we talked about it, the, the angrier that we got. And I, I remember at one point being so angry, I, I pointed to a baseball bat against the wall and say, said, uh, you know, I wish whoever did that were here, I would take that baseball bat and I would beat his brains out. Well, <clears throat> I was so angry that when I finally went to, uh, to bed up at my uh, relative's house, um, I, I couldn't sleep. And I just spent three hours just walking back and forth around the, uh, the bedroom until about 3 a.m. And I just thought, well, this is crazy, you know, I, I got to do something. And so I, I sat down on the bed to write a eulogy for my mom because I was the oldest and I was going to give mm. the talk at her, uh, at her funerals. And so, uh, as I thought about what, what does a life, what makes up a life, you know, here's a woman that's not been more than a hundred miles away from home in her life other than being in the in the army and being a nurse for a, a few years and uh and yet she had raised three kids and uh, you know she had a meaningful life it's that it's a it's a wonderful life you know again that's the jimmy stewart character yeah. that uh, her life made a big difference but as i thought about it i suddenly realized that here, I'm a forgiveness researcher. I've been studying for I've written a book by that time on forgiveness. Uh, you know, I, I had done studies on it. I had seen clinical couples for 15 years and taught them forgiveness interventions. And, and yet I had not in almost 24 hours, I had not allowed myself to even think about the word forgiveness. Yeah. And I thought, oh man, I gotta, I gotta at least think through this. And so, so I sat and thought about that reach forgiveness model. 
and trying to recall, okay, what happened, and then think about it from the point of view of a young man who's out in the cold. I mean, that's New Year's in Tennessee. That's the height of winter, so that's probably, you know, below zero uh, centigrade, and he's out there in the cold looking at this house thinking, I'm going to create a perfect crime, and yet he finally gets in, and then, you know, this, this woman is looking at him, saying, why, what are you doing in my house? And you can imagine, I could imagine that he was, you know, angry. My perfect crime is being spoiled by this old woman. He's afraid. She's looking at my face. I'm going to go to jail. He's holding that crowbar. He's impulsive because you don't, you're not breaking into houses if you're a youth and unless you've got impulse control issues. And he just reaches out and begins to strike her. And as he, as he, as I thought about that and thought about him striking her, I kind of went back to that time earlier in the evening where I looked at that baseball bat and I pointed to it and said, I wish that whoever did that were here, I would take that bat and hit him in the head till he died. And I thought, I just couldn't help but think, wait a minute, whose heart is darker here? Is it this mm. impulse impulsive youth whose perfect crime is spoiled? Or is it me, this forgiveness researcher, Christian, who can't even think the word forgiveness and is willing to take a baseball bat after 24 hours and hit the guy in the head till he dies? And I thought, well, my heart is darker than his. And yet I knew if I could be forgiven for that, which you know, as a Christian, I felt like I could be forgiven. I thought, well, if I can be forgiven for that darkness of my heart, then who am I to hold this against this young man? And so I was able to forgive him. Now, I wish that were the end of the story. Uh, it, it's it's not um, for a lot of different reasons, but one of the reasons was my brother... Uh, developed post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of walking in and finding my mother's body. And for 10 years, he suffered with this PTSD. I didn't know it. But after about 10 years, I was down in Knoxville at a conference, and Mike and I went out to dinner together. And uh, we got to talking, and he said, you know, I still have problems with that scene that I saw, you know, I, mm. sometimes I'm, I'm so depressed. I just go into my, into my bedroom and shut the blinds and stay in there like a, from on a Saturday for 12 hours in the dark and just these horrible scenes come to my mind. And I said, Mike, you know, you really ought to, see a counselor about that, you know, that, that sounds like a post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, he did not have a good view of counselors. Uh, 
we inherited this from our father, uh, who was an active alcoholic and was mandated to go to counseling once. And, you know, he did not like the psychologist. And so he passed that on to, to Mike. And so when I said, Mike, you, you might need to see a psychologist about this, Mike goes, I'm not going to any shrink. So he says this to his shrink brother, right? So this mm. probably tells you something about the older brother, the younger brother dynamic uh, that we had growing up. But so I said, well, Mike, you know, if, if it's been 10 years and you haven't gotten over it, if you don't do something different, you're not going to get over this. And he said, yeah. I'm not going to any blankety blank. I, he didn't actually say blankety blank, but, you know, to any blankety blank shrink. Yeah. And I don't want to hear any more about it. Well, at that point, I was like almost 60 and, you know, I had a lot of clinical experience. And, you know, I understand about resistance. Did I use my clinical knowledge? Not for a minute. I acted just like a hormone crazed 16 year old who's in a conflict with his brother. And he goes, I don't want to hear any more about it. And I went, fine, whatever. And, uh, and I didn't bring it up again. Well, within three months, he committed suicide. And so then that left me feeling like really bad about myself because I had not used the things that, that I was equipped to do. And I, had, I felt like I had let my brother down. And that set me off on a, a kind of a journey trying to pursue self-forgiveness. Whereas the forgiving the young man who murdered my mom happened quickly, which it almost never does, but it just happened that way with me that night. I spent about two years trying to forgive myself and ended up having like spiritual, you know, distancing from God and, and all kinds of other fallout uh, as a result of that. So, so yeah, it, I have had a, a kind of a complicated, uh, you know, experience with forgiveness, uh, mm. both self-forgiveness and uh, forgiving others. And so... Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing because it's definitely um, something that I think, you know, even if it's not such, um, you know, an intense life-changing experience, isn't that, then it's something that, you know, we come across, whether it's in our friends or our family or our um, personal experiences. And, yeah, being able to forgive yourself and forgive others is so much more difficult and more complicated than we sort of give it credit for and I think it's something that we need to um, yeah learn and I think everybody's going to have a different approach to this whether that's you know from a religious perspective or philosophical or those kinds of things but I think as long as we're yeah learning from those experiences and learning from those around us just being able to um sort of discuss it with people and yeah that's why it is so important to have those conversations um and to be able to yeah learn from others learn from ourselves um and when yeah you do share sort of how you've 
overcome things and work through things, then, you know, you may also be helping somebody else who is going through something similar to that. So I think it's always, um, yeah, important, but uh, difficult, obviously. Yeah, very difficult. But I think if we're, um, yeah, in the sort of, in the business of helping people, then it's always uh, helpful to be able to show like, hey, you know, just because I know about this thing doesn't mean that I'm going to be 100% perfect at it. And that doesn't mean that it's always going to come naturally to me, no matter who you are. Um, so yes, thank you so much for sharing. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go into our practice habit debrief now. So this is essentially the part of the podcast where we discuss uh, something that the experts do to sort of help them um, work through you know, something to reach that place of personal resilience. So in terms of your forgiveness strategies, do you have um, a specific sort of forgiveness practice or habit that you do to um, help sort of work through uh, things on a day-to-day -day life or big life experiences? Yeah, I, I think these kind of um, practices it, it, with different virtues are different so um so for example you know with gratitude having a, a gratitude journal or you know we can do that every day we can you know write three things that we're grateful for with forgiveness it's not you know really quite like that because it's more like a as needed so you know, I, I may go, uh, if I have a, a kind of a easily upset personality, I may go a day before somebody offends me. If I have a real agreeable personality, I may go a month or a year before somebody offends me. So whenever we get hurt or offended, then, you know, we need something that's a practice that we can do. And, and that that reach forgiveness model um, we have uh, put into group form, psychoeducational group forms or counseling, you know, individual counseling forms. But the thing that's uh, that we've done in the last 10 years or so is to develop do-it-yourself workbooks for these. And um, so there is about a six hour do-it-yourself workbook that, and, and I, I put all of this free on my website, uh, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to post that. It's fworthington-forgiveness.com. But yes, definitely. All of these are totally free and downloadable Word documents that people can work through. So, so we have developed uh, six-hour versions, secular versions, Christian versions self-forgiveness, you know, other virtues like humility. I have just uh, developed a two-hour little workbook or maybe two and a half hours. We haven't posted that yet because we have not gotten a randomized controlled trial that shows that it's effective. We actually right. have done the trial uh, with 4,400 participants in six countries. Oh, wow. Or five, five countries. So it's a giant trial, but it hasn't been accepted mm. in a journal at this point. So until mm. it gets accepted, I don't put it out for public use. But hopefully 
soon that will go out for public use. So people can take a this six-hour do-it-yourself workbook, and there's a little button right there on the you know, first page if you, if you went to the web page that says DIY workbooks. And people could work through that. And it might take them, you know, five hours or seven hours. The second time that they, that they do it, there's a lot of stuff that's just introducing them to the ideas. So the second time through, it's going to take them like three hours because mm. they don't have to learn all the stuff that they learned the first time through. So, so then that becomes a practice of, okay, you know, this new issue I'm aggravated about, I'm going to go to that workbook. I'm going to spend three hours, you know, and work through it on a Saturday morning and, uh, you know, and see if I can get, get past this. So that is the type of practice that, you know, I, I think is helpful with something like forgiveness that's a very event-caused type of uh, mm. experience instead of something that's just a habit that we can do daily. Yeah, definitely. So is there anything specific um that you do yourself that you sort of employ um, kind of outside, you know, the sort of workbooks and the professional aspect of it? Is there something that you do yourself that you find most helpful for you? Well, I think one thing that uh, is helpful, it, it sometimes is hard to empathize with a person who has been a jerk to you just saying, you know, but yeah. you know, it, it can be it <laughs> yeah. can be a challenge, let's say. Of course. And so one of the things that actually is has quite a bit of research showing it's effective is to use an empty chair dialogue. Now many people are familiar with these, but this is like you're sitting in one chair and you set this empty chair across from you and then you pretend that the person who hurt you is in that chair and you you talk with them and you pour out your your heart about what how much they've hurt you and then you get up and get in their chair and you try to respond back as they would mm. and then you get back in your chair and you argue back now it, it turns out that there has been research on just the empty chair dialogues and that People usually get to one of two places when they go through that dialogue for a number of times. And that is, yeah. they either get to the place where they spontaneously say, okay, I forgive you. I understand you. I empathize with you. I forgive you. Or they get to the place and they say, you know, I don't care, but I don't want to deal with it anymore. And yeah. it's about 50-50 as to you know, who who goes which way. Like I say, it doesn't matter. You don't, people don't have to forgive. You know, they can get past this by, you know, kind of, I'm autonomous. I don't need your, you know, I don't need to forgive you uh, for this. So that is something that I've found to be helpful for myself is to, you know, if I'm having trouble empathizing with how a person can have could have done this thing to me, it's easy to sit there and I don't even have to get 
two chairs out and bounce back and forth between the chairs. I can just imagine having this conversation on one side and then the other, you know, and that helps me to understand maybe where they're coming from. Mm. So how do you feel this practice impacts your personal resilience? Well, I think it, it gives me a coping repertoire uh, or a, you know, a, a coping behavior in my repertoire mm. of coping uh, uh, skills. And so I feel more confident that that I am going to be able to deal with this hurt in some way. You know, there may be five or six different ways that I try to deal with a hurt. Uh, but if I, if I have confidence that three or four or five of those might be effective, then I can pull out one, I can try it. And then if that doesn't work, then I say, okay, let's try this one. Mm. And so that helps me just to have the perseverance to be able to go on and not try one thing and say, wow, that didn't work. I'm doomed always to hate this person. <laughs> yeah. So would you recommend this practice to everybody or is do you think this is sort of something that is a bit more niche to the individual person? Yeah, uh, I think that most people, not everyone, but most people can benefit by it because we're pretty good as a species at being able to empathize with folks. But again, I always go back to saying there are many ways to deal with injustices in my life. Forgiveness is just one of them. So, so what's important is that you try different ways until you find something that is working for you. And what works for me this time I, may be forgiveness. And what works for me next time may be acceptance and moving on. And what works for me the next time might be turning it over to God. So, you know, you work until you find something that uh, works for you. And uh, I think that's the key. And forgiveness, yeah, I think so, most people can benefit by forgiveness, but not not everybody. Mm. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think it's something that um, you sort of learn more about as you get older and mature and you kind of learn about those different sides of yourself because, you know, you interact with different people and you face different challenges that, you know, you didn't have to face when you were a kid or a teenager or even just a young adult. So based on your experience, do you have any other recommendations of practice that you would combine with this or a way to sort of improve this particular practice? Uh, well, so um, let's just say that, you know, I, I simplified the reach forgiveness model when I described it. And so I said, E that's empathize with the person you know who harmed you but actually in a broader way that stands that e stands for emotionally replace the negative emotions with positive other oriented emotions and so 
so I don't have to empathize with the person. I could, you know, feel uh, sympathy for them. So if I, sympathy is like feeling sorry for somebody, I could say, oh, man, I feel sorry that he got to the place that he would do such a thing to me. Well, it turns out sympathy is an, is another one of those emotions that you that can neutralize the resentment and the bitterness. Compassion for the person. You know, compassion is like sympathy with work boots. You know, I, I feel sorry <laughs> for the person and I want to do something to help. Or even love, you know, like with partners that are romantic partners, if, when they hurt each other, often the emotion that is used to neutralize the negativity is love for the other person. So, so what can, you know, kind of build on the empathy is to have in my whole repertoire other emotions like sympathy and compassion and love that I can try to experience to um, neutralize some of that negativity. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think, like I mentioned before, so many different facets and so many different things that can be um, used to combine and sort of build on that forgiveness. So we're going to go into just one audience question now because we kind of answered the other ones beforehand. So I've got one question here that asks, um, how can I forgive someone who has severely wronged me? Where is the fine line between forgiveness for healing versus possible naivety? Yeah, I, I like to th think that forgiveness is, um, is something that, you know, anybody can do and it's beneficial to them to forgive. Remember, forgiveness happens inside our skin. But just because I forgive doesn't mean that we have to reconcile. So if we're going to reconcile in a relationship, that's something that's something that's interpersonal. That's not something inside my skin. Yeah. And that requires that we both be trustworthy. You know, if the other person is not going to be trustworthy, if they're going to continue to hurt me day in and day out, I can forgive them every time they hurt me. That doesn't mean that I want to reestablish a trusting relationship because they are not being going to be trustworthy. So I am not going to reconcile with them, you know. And in fact, if this is my boss and I can't get away from them, I'm going to try to structure my day so that I deal with them as little as possible. You know, so uh, so keeping apart the idea of what is in a relationship versus what goes on inside True, my being, yeah. that's that's the key there. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's yeah a good way to look at it because I think otherwise it can yeah just be sort of a bit too. Um, but yes, I hope that answers that question. <laughs> Thank you. And we're now going to go into open mic now. So this is a part of the show where the guest has a chance to talk about anything that they are passionate about. It doesn't have to be related to the topic. Um, so I hand it over to you, Everett. Yeah. Well, 
you know, I uh, do research in different virtues. So I, I study virtues like, you know, forgiveness and, and patience and self-control. And uh, but, but one that, you know, we've studied quite a lot is humility. And, uh, and so I, I thought I would talk about humility because it, it's so relevant for today. Uh, so, you know, first of all, you know, what is humility? And uh, so my definition is, is that got four parts to it. And I hate to sound so academic. Maybe it's too late. I already <laughs> found academic, but it's got four parts and they are all necessary, you know, and the four of them have to be there for it. So it's necessary and sufficient conditions for humility. So the first condition is that we, <clears throat> we see our strengths and weaknesses and we have an accurate view of our strengths and weaknesses. And, um, and the second uh, part is that we try to be teachable to correct our weaknesses. So the first part is like, it's kind of like the, the baby bear, you know, in the Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold, but just right, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, so you know, we, we have an accurate view of our strengths and weaknesses you know, not thinking too bad of myself, not thinking too good of myself, but being accurate. And then I, I'm teachable. The third part is more interpersonal, and that is that I need to ha have a modest self-presentation. So, you know, we, we would not say somebody is, uh, we're not, we not uh, say a, a politician is, is humble if they're just spouting off I am the greatest. And then the fourth part is where psychologists will go in one of two directions. So one of the, the about half of the people will, will say that, you know, it's, it's having a quiet mind, you know, it's, mm. you know, it's, it's not not being always, you know, uh, a, a noisy mind that is uh, touting my own, you know, how wonderful I am. But the other half of the people, and I'm on the this side, is is to say that that we need an other orientation, an orientation toward others to lift them up instead of putting them down. So yeah. accurate view of strengths and weaknesses teachable, modest self-presentation, and an other orientation to lift others up and not put them down. Mm. So it turns out there are several types of humility. And so one is kind of general humility. Yeah. Okay. But another is, is like a state of humility. So if I'm going into this negotiation, this business negotiation, I don't want to go in just going you know, trying to jam my point of view down the other person's throat. I, I want to go in with a attitude. It's a humble attitude that's oriented toward others. That's accurately viewing what my strengths and weaknesses are. So, so that's a state of humility. Now, another type of humility is relational humility. 
So relational humility just recognizes that a boss, a humble boss, is going to do different things than a humble worker. A humble teacher is going to do different things than a humble student. So, you know, what makes up humility interpersonally is going to depend on the relationship. The, the, the one other type of humility, and, and this is where it gets really relevant for today, is called intellectual humility. So intellectual humility is, is really, um, you know, holding my ideas in a kind of loosely enough that I am aware of my own limitations. You know, I'm aware that I might make mistakes, that I might not have all the facts that, so I just, I can't just like come across as I know exactly the way things are. So there are different types of intellectual humility. So one of the, or two of the kind of important types are political humility and religious humility. This is the way that people disagree. You know, they mm. stake out their position and they go like, this is the way it's going to be. And I will write nasty notes on your Facebook page if you disagree with me. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. you know, so, uh, and this is, is, today we have so many conversations where people are just polarized and and so I, I think that, you know, humility is like the kind of the way that we can maybe mitigate some of this polarization throughout our world today, yeah. uh, you know, in, in political issues, but also in religious issues. And and academics are just terrible at this. You know, we all have our, <laughs> if you don't believe my theory, then I'll write on your Facebook page, you know, <laughs> at any rate. So I, I think uh, some of the things that we have done is develop a, a little, you know, a do-it-yourself workbook to help people mm. who wish to cultivate humility to, to be more humble. Uh, we've done a study that uh, the data are collected, but we haven't written it up yet, on political humility in sh the Chicago area with three big yeah, wow. schools in the in the area trying to yeah. help people develop a sense of more political tentativeness instead of, mm. you know, being so argumentative and polarized. So yeah. anyway, this is my open mic. I, I just think that... Uh, <laughs> Humility really is good for forgiveness. It's good yeah. for politics. It's good for religion. It's good for just the way that spouses and, and partners treat mm -hmm. each other. You know, we've just uh, finished a, a project in which uh, we're, we uh, just had a meeting about it on, on uh, last Monday in which we tried to code the way that married couples talked about things they disagreed about and about, you know, what yeah. were the behaviors they did that showed the other person they were not being humble, such as rolling their eyes when the other person talks or looking away and, you know, and crossing their arms and, you know, so we tried to code some of those key behaviors. Yeah. Fascinating. 
No, oh, yeah, I think humility is something, yes, that the world definitely needs um, a lot of, especially these days when, you know, information is so accessible and people can have so many more conversations. And while that's a lot of the time beneficial for people to be able to learn and experience new things and, you know, have that growth mindset, it also, you know, fosters opportunities for people to, you know, heads to get a little bit too big and, you know, opinions to get a little too strong. So I think, yes, humility, definitely. Everyone go check out, um, yeah, that workbook because I think we could all use a little bit, um, yeah, more humility and a bit more forgiveness. I think it's something um, that definitely needs to be, yes, definitely more normalized and, um, yeah, more proliferate. So anyway, that pretty much brings us to the end of Open Mic and the end of our podcast. Thank you so much, Everett, for being here. Uh, for those who want to find out a bit more about you and what you do, where can they go? Um, my my website is www.evworthington-forgiveness.com. So that's E-V Worthington, no space, hyphen, not a, not a dash, but a hyphen, forgiveness.com. All of the stuff that's on there, except the books, they won't let me give away my books, but you know, all the other <laughs> stuff is absolutely free. So there's all these downloadable resources and, you know, see, you know, uh, recordings of me running groups to show how to do it. And it's, it's all yeah. just free resources. Oh, fascinating. Well, definitely everyone go check that out. And thank you so much, Everett, for being here. Well, it was my pleasure. Thanks for uh, the interview. Enjoyed it here. <laughs> Thanks. You have been listening to Bouncing Back, the personal resilience science insights podcast produced by the Life Management Science Labs. Listen to episodes from LMSL's 10 Life Management Perspectives on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or other podcasting apps on your smartphone. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps others find us and us grow to bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at pr.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Tia Hama. Thanks for tuning in.